I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And uh, as you know, I've been going through a verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians. uh, And we are now in everyone's most exciting section, which is chapter 11 through 14, uh, which includes some very weighty and really texts that oftentimes you just have to sludge through them and preach them accurately. Uh, but it's not anything that's going to make anyone get up and run around and take a lap uh, and shout amen. Um, and so what I want to do is uh, introduce you to this text here in John 15 uh, as we just take some breaks in our exposition of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I want to draw your attention to this passage, which is really a high watermark of our New Testament and shows forth and puts forth the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in exquisite detail. It is Christ here speaking in this text. And anytime we have Christ speaking, what we have in the Gospels, especially towards the end of them, when He is reiterating to His disciples the truth concerning His own death, burial, and resurrection, we have the greatest preacher that ever lived preaching the greatest message that's ever been preached We have Christ preaching Himself. And so, I'm going to preach uh, this text in five parts, but I'm not going to do it consecutively. But as we take breaks in 1 Corinthians, I'll return to John 15 over the next several months, uh, six months, seven months, who knows, uh, as we take breaks in 1 Corinthians and come back to John 15 and, and, and draw gold out of this mine. And so today, I just want to introduce you to this chapter and look at the first three verses. So John 15, let me read to you the first three verses. The Bible says this, these are the words of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. John 15 is part of that section in the Gospel of John known as the Upper Room Discourse, which goes from chapters 13 to chapter 17. In this section, our Lord Jesus is giving some final comforts and admonitions to His disciples shortly before His death. As Jesus speaks in chapter 15... He is only hours away from His crucifixion. Even though this is part of the upper room discourse, they are no longer in the upper room. If you look at the last verse there of chapter 14, it ends with Jesus saying this, Arise, let us go hence. So He takes His disciples and He leads them out of the upper room and He takes them out to the east side of Jerusalem, out to a garden called Gethsemane, where He would agonize in prayer, and his sweat would become drops of blood. By the time we come to John 15, Judas has already been dismissed. It's an important detail for us to remember. And so now he is with his 11 remaining disciples, and he spoke these words to them in the garden. When he says to them, I am the true vine, he's standing in a garden, in a vineyard, After he prays in the garden, 
Judas will return and will betray him with a kiss. He will be taken away, tried by night, (laughs) hung on a Roman cross to suffer under the wrath of God and to give his life in death. These are some of his last words to his disciples. This is, as it were, the swan song of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the subject of this discourse in John 15 is about the nature of genuine salvation. The nature of genuine salvation. Jesus spends the last few moments with His disciples not giving them some sort of political theory whereby they may take the message of the kingdom and reconstruct the world and not by giving them some motivational speech that's going to encourage them through their difficulties, though we find much encouragement here. But He spends His last moments with His disciples talking to them about what it truly means to be a Christian. That's striking to me. You, you would think, logically, right? You would think he's been with them for three and a half years. They followed him. They've heard him preach time and time again. They, they, they've, they, they've seen his miracles. They've ate with him. And yet, it is to these men that he preaches the message of what it means to truly be a Christian. He's not preaching to the Jews to the Pharisees. He's not preaching to the Romans. He's not preaching on the streets to lost sinners. That's where we expect this message to be preached. And it should be preached there. We preach it there as a church. No, he preaches it to his disciples. Well, before we jump into the text, I think it's, it's, it's safe to make the inference here that the gospel is a message that we desperately need as Christians. Amen. Whether you've been in the faith 30 minutes or 30 years, you need the gospel. You need to know what it means to be a true Christian. Now, I'm not talking about this kind of uh, preaching that always wants to bring the saints under scrutiny. You know what I mean? There are are preachers that it's it's, it's as if it's their spiritual gift to make Christians doubt their salvation. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is doing here. And that's not what I intend to do here. But there's just something about the gospel. There's just something about that message. You know, faithful preaching is not finding some new way to say some new thing. But it's proclaiming to the saints of God over and over and over again the things we so quickly forget. So what does it mean to be a true disciple of Christ? How does one know if they are a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus? That's what he is preaching in this passage. And there's a few things that I want you to see in this text. First is this, I want you to see the characters. The characters. Jesus begins this chapter in typical fashion with a parable. If you know anything about the earthly teaching ministry of Christ, you know that he used a lot of parables, a lot of figurative, metaphorical language. And he did that for various reasons. Well, there's four characters here in this parable. We have the vine. We have the vine dresser. And then we have two kinds of branches. 
There are good branches which bear forth fruit and they are purged. And then there are bad branches which bear no fruit and are cut down and burned. Jesus has a way of explaining profound concepts in very simple terms. In an agricultural society such as Israel, standing in a garden, he he was not pragmatic, but he, he was an opportunist in the sense of he's standing in this garden, he sees the vine, and he immediately says, let me proclaim to you from what you're seeing with the physical eye some spiritual realities about who I am and what I've come to do. And so let's introduce ourselves to these characters. We see in verse number 1, our Lord begins by saying, I am the true vine. Jesus is the first character in this parable. And in this simple statement, Jesus is making two declarations about His identity. About His identity. Number one, He is declaring His deity. He says, I am, ego, I, me. This is the divine name of God that God uses of Himself all throughout the Old Testament. And seven times in the New Testament, Jesus claims this title as His own. This is one of the I am statements of Christ. Some false religions in our day will claim Christianity while denying the very deity of Christ. But even the unbelieving Jews knew exactly what he meant when he claimed this title. John 5 and verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The interesting thing about that is even the Jews understand the, the claim that Jesus is making. They knew exactly what he meant when he said, I am. They knew he was claiming equality with God, and that is the very reason they sought to kill him. And let me say this to you. Had they been correct, they should have killed him. Right. Is there anything more blasphemous than claiming to be God when you are not? Well, actually, there is. And that is denying that the Son of God is God when He is. Wow. Mm-hmm. What they accused Him of, they themselves were the epitome of committing. Denying the promised one. Denying the Messiah. Denying the Savior. Denying the Redeemer. You, know, you wonder sometimes... How could these Jews be so familiar with the text of the Old Testament? It's striking to me. You see obscure references in the New Testament that are made as a given that the Jews will know exactly what he's referring to. And and we'll see, as a matter of fact, that this, this imagery of the vine is one of them. But you you wonder, how could these Jews be so familiar with the New Testament, or the Old Testament, and have it so wrong? But yet, how many Christians today go to church Sunday after Sunday, read their little one verse of the day devotional in the mornings, say a few prayers on their drive to work, listen to some 
Christian music on their radio, yet if Jesus Christ Himself were to walk into their church, they would not recognize Him. Because these things are spiritually discerned. And because they didn't spiritually discern these things, they spent their whole life from the time they were children to the time they entered into the temple ministry, they spent their whole life reading the Old Testament, reading the prophets, yet when the prophesied one came on the scene, they did not recognize Him. They rejected Him. When Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am... They should have said, Oh, finally, Jehovah has sent the Messiah. Oh, finally, the the Son of God has come to redeem us. Oh, finally, all of the temple sacrifice and the blood of bulls and goats and all of those things that could never take away our sin. Finally, the, the true and better sacrifice has come. Praise Jehovah. But instead, when... When he said, before Abraham was, I am, the Bible says, they took up stones to kill him. Jesus says in John 8, same chapter, a few verses later in verse 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins if ye believe not that I am he. Ye shall die in your sins. Do you want to... 21st century concise interpretation of that. If you reject the deity of Christ, you will go to hell when you die. There is no salvation apart from a reception of Christ's sheer, full, total, uncompromised divinity. And when we receive Christ's divinity, listen very carefully, we receive it as it's given to us in the Word, not as it's interpreted through those who would want to distort Christ's divinity into something that is actually lesser than divinity. Because you will have, you will have certain cults and certain religions that have no problem saying, oh yes, we believe that Jesus is a divine being. He is a God. He's one of the gods. And if you live how He did, you can become one too. That's not a biblical definition of divinity. You have those that say, yes, Jesus is a divine being. He, he sits at the Father's right hand and he's, he's second in command. You have those that will say, well, yes, we believe uh, that Jesus is the Savior and we believe that He entered into His divine role as the Son of God at His incarnation. The sad thing is that you've got Christians who will actually take offense to you making a point that the eternal generation of the Son of God is a big deal. And it is a big deal. Our Lord Jesus Christ was begotten, not created. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Jehovah. Our Lord Jesus Christ, before the world was, John says, He was with God, Because He was 
God. And literally, the Greek there, the word order is actually reversed than it is in our English translations. It doesn't say in the Greek, uh, and the word was God. It says, God was word. It equates theos and logos. They are the same. Children, listen to Pastor Ken. What I'm saying to you, because I'm using some big terminology, what I'm saying to you is this, that Jesus Christ is God. That He's always been God. That Jehovah, the Father, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one being that have been throughout all eternity. And in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, who already existed, who was already God, who was already in heaven with His Father, He came into the world to save sinners. And that's what Jesus is declaring when He says, I am. I am. But secondly, in in the way that this applies to us in our Christian life, He is also declaring that He is the source of life. He doesn't say that I am a vine, but I am the true vine. The image of a vine illustrates the union of Christ with His people. They are connected like a vine is connected to its branches. This also illustrates the disciples' utter dependence upon Christ. Branches only receive their life in so much as they remain connected to the vine. If you see a vine growing on a, on a tree and you see the little branches and shoots that grow off of the vine, if you were to take one of those branches and cut it off and throw it on the ground, it will wither and it will die. For you to lose your union with Christ would be for you to wither and die. There is a a mysterious oneness. It's a mystery because we, we can't fully comprehend it. This oneness of life as the branches take on the life of the vine. The closest explanation we have of it is in our New Testament in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 when the Apostle Paul says, I, so speaking of himself, I was crucified with Christ. Now, what happens when someone is crucified? They die. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Well, how did you live through crucifixion, Paul? Oh, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. His life is my life. And my life is not my own anymore, Paul says. My life was my own. When I was a lost Pharisee, I was alive without the law once. I did what I wanted. I I, I sang to my own tune. I, I worked to my own bell. But then the commandment came. Sin revived and I died. I was crucified with Him. I died. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Union with Christ is what He's displaying for us here in this imagery of the vine. But he doesn't just say he's a vine. He's the true vine. And he does this 
to set himself against false vines that would promise life but cannot provide what they promise. All throughout the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as a vine. I could quote to you Jeremiah 2 and verse 21, Ezekiel 15 and verse 2, but let me quote Hosea 10 verses 1 through 3. Listen to what Jehovah says about Israel. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. Israel was a vine. In some ways you could argue that it still is a vine. But it does not have divine life inside of it. And it brings forth no good fruit. The fruit that that vine brought forth were, were altars to false gods and pagan images. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, who were all from Galilee, Judas, by the way, was the only one from the southern kingdom, do with that detail what you want to later, all from Galilee, all Jews, all intimately familiar with the Old Testament, and Jesus says, I am the true vine, Hosea 10, verses 1 through 3, would have rung in their minds. See, if you wanted to worship God in the Old Testament, you had to be engrafted into Israel. There was simply no way to rightly serve Him apart from Israel. You had to become a proselyte. To to join the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom of God, was essential to joining the physical nation of Israel. But when they rejected their Messiah, and when they rejected His gospel, they forever became a false vine. There is no life in them. And so what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying in in John 15, is that if you want true life, you must be connected to me. I am the true Israel of God. I am the elect one. I am the father of many nations. Come unto me, the true vine. So I ask you this morning, are you connected to him? We can make the same analogy. A church and its membership without the true vine bears forth no good fruit. Do not trust in your church membership. Do not trust in your confessional affirmations. It's not union with the people of God, it's union with God through Christ. So that's the first character here. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true vine. But secondly, he says, and my father is the husbandman. The husbandman, the vine dresser, the one who cares for the vine and ensures its health. Jesus is impressing the value of this plant that is watched over and cared for by God. The father was behind everything Jesus did. 
of the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son into the world, ordained His incarnation, cared for Him, filled Him with the Spirit, upheld Him throughout His earthly ministry. We'll see, uh, by the way, that just as the Father cared for the vine, so He cares for the branches. To care for one is to care for the other. We'll see that in a moment, but let me introduce you to the third and fourth character. The third and fourth characters are the branches. He says, every branch, every branch in me. And verse 2 of John 15 has been troubling Bible expositors since John wrote John 15. What does it mean, Jesus, that there is a branch in you, it's attached to you, but ultimately... It's taken away. It doesn't bear fruit. It withers and it dies. Well, first, we see here, very plainly, very clearly, not all branches are the same. Okay, if, we, if we disagree on what it means to have a branch attached to Christ... and ta- But we can't disagree with the fact that there's two kinds of branches here. They are, and, they are all attached to... To Christ, at least in some sense. So what does this mean? Okay. In the Old Testament, if you were a circumcised child of Abraham, you were attached to the visible people of God, thus, in an objectivist sense, you were united with God. You were objectively considered His people. We speak about Israel that way all the time. We say... Israel in the Old Testament, they were the people of God. Even though history bears out, many of them were unconverted. If you profess faith in Christ in the New Testament and you have received the sign of His covenant in an objective sense, you are a branch united and attached to Him. In the same way, those of us who have made a profession of our faith in Christ have said, yes, we receive Him as our Lord, and not only uh, merely with the mouth, but we have then received the sign of the covenant, the ordinance of baptism, we have united with the church. We are objectively, in the world's estimation and in each other's estimation, the visible people of God. The inner condition of the heart is no more visible in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. But just like in the Old Testament, not all branches have the life of the true vine. Not all branches possess what they profess. This is why Jesus uses this imagery to speak to His disciples. Because the crux of who He's addressing here are not sinners who have never heard. They're not lost people that have never received the gospel. But he preaches the nature of genuine salvation to those who have a profession and have some sort of external attachment. But the differentiating factor is this. Branches that possess life bear fruit. But those that don't possess life bear no fruit. 
Well, these are the characters, and we'll learn more about them as we continue on. And the second thing I want you to see at the end of verse 2 is the cutting away. The cutting away. It has been said that the Father is the forgotten member of the Trinity. Um, Many Christians would have a hard time explaining what it is that the Father even does in the economy of redemption or even in their own life as a Christian. Much emphasis is placed upon the Son as well as it should be. And in our day, for better or for worse, a lot of emphasis is placed on the Holy Spirit. But we often have a hard time understanding what exactly it is that the Father does. And so for the rest of our time, uh, we will spend focusing on this all-important work of the Father. In verse 2, the Father is doing two things. Number one, He is taking away bad branches that don't bear fruit. He does that. And secondly, He is purging good branches so that they can be even more fruitful. He is judging the one and sending them to hell and pruning the other and preparing them for heaven. And right now, brothers and sisters, God the Father is doing one of these two things in your life. He is either pruning you and weeding you and preparing you to dwell eternally with Him or He is in the process of bringing about your eternal condemnation. But make no mistake about it, God the Father is not indifferent in the lives of any of the branches. So let's consider this work in the way and in the order that our text presents it. He says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Uh, Again, this is uh, the the picture here is that of a vine dresser, of a gardener, of of a man who goes out to his vineyard and he's inspecting his crop and he sees the vine and he's looking at the branches and he notices some branches that are bearing forth fruit. They're green, they're ripe, they're, they're fruitful, they're, they're lively. But then he sees these other branches that are withering and decaying and they're drooping down. And so in order to ensure the overall health of the vine, he, he cuts away those bad branches and he takes them away. This is the language of divine judgment. It is not that the Father works death and decay in the branches. It is that he judges the death and decay that he sees and he cuts it off. This should strike fear into the hearts of those who claim to be Christians but have no fruit in their lives to testify of their union with Christ. You may be able to to put on a good show Sunday morning from 10.30 to noon, uh, but you know that Monday through Saturday your life is absolutely fruitless. Your church members don't see it. Your pastor doesn't see it. But the Father sees it. Such false professors must understand that it is the Father's prerogative to take you away and judge you and destroy you. Matthew 15 and verse 13. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Sometimes that takes place in this life as the church experiences the the, the awful sting of apostasy. 
It happened in the first church, did it not? In fact, it was about to happen very vividly in just a few hours from when Jesus is speaking here in John 15. As Judas, a false branch, a dead branch who did not bring forth good fruit would come and be taken away by the Father. His, his apostasy, his, his evil, his, his iniquitous, unregenerate heart would be manifest. When our Lord instituted the Lord's Supper and He announced to His church, one of you shall betray Me. The church members did not look around and say, yeah, well, we know who He's talking about. We've been noticing that Judas really has been lagging behind. He's not kept up on his Bible reading plan. Uh, his prayer life is really pathetic. He, he, he doesn't come faithfully to the service. You see what I'm saying? No, he was there. He was with the people of God. He, he went with them, saw the same miracles, casted out devils. I don't have time to chase that rabbit trail. But he did it. He preached. He was the treasurer. We don't really see it revealed in our text, but do you not think that there must have been a sting there in those disciples when Judas apostatized when he was taken away we experience that sting do we not in our churches we think I I, I can't explain it because I've heard this person say things I've seen them do things I've I've seen what I, I, I thought for sure, was spiritual fruit. But apparently it wasn't fruit that remained. And there's two things I want to say about that. Number one, that should cause us to fear and tremble. Outwardly, there was nothing about Judas that made him any worse than any of the other disciples. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians... Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. When we see those who we look up to as spiritual, those who we would regard as leaders in the church, when we see them fall away, it should strike fear into our hearts. But secondly, let me encourage you and let me comfort you with this. Judas's apostasy was part of the Father's superintending and care for the church. If there is someone united to the church, united visibly to Christ, that does not possess life, the best thing that could ever happen, both for them and for the congregation and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, is for their deception to be taken away. And that's what happened with Judas. Well, that is, that is this idea of, of taking away, but secondly, we see The Father not only takes away, but He also purges. He purges. And this is really what I want to focus in on for the rest of our time. Because we see later on in the text, verses 4-8, through we see this certainty of fruit bearing. And it is a certainty. Um, The doctrine of the carnal Christian is, is absolutely abominable. This idea that you can truly be united to Christ and just bear forth no fruit. 
and you can be saved and you can go on living as if you were lost because you've received Him as Savior, but you haven't yet received Him as Lord. Well, Jesus deals with that in verses 4 and 8. But what He focuses here on in verses 2 and 3 is the, the certainty of purging. The certainty of purging. What is purging? The process of purging involves cutting away the weeds that grow on the vine and waste the nutrients needed by the fruit-bearing branches. If a husbandman doesn't weed his garden, the whole garden will be ruined. Weeds will overtake it. It will be overgrown. And then the the fruit-bearing crops will have no nutrients in the soil to use to produce their fruit. Those who are truly united to Christ will be purged. Pruned, weeded, cleansed. What, What our Lord is talking about here is the Father's active role in the sanctification of every believer. To ensure your fruitfulness in the Christian life, the Father must strip you of what is rank and what is luxuriant and what is excessive and what is useless so that you can be fit to bring forth fruit unto His glory. Modern evangelicalism oftentimes believes in a God that just wants you to be happy all the time. And so whatever it is that brings you happiness, go for it because that's God's will for your life. And we see even later in this chapter uh, that, that, that God is chiefly concerned with our joy. But child of God, you ought to know by now that you cannot have true joy apart from holiness. Right. And if you can, you might not be a child of God. That's right. If you can delight in and receive joy and happiness from those things which displease your Father, be very, very afraid of your own profession. But this process of purging is sometimes as painful as it is needful. We often have an unhealthy attachment to the weeds in our life. Those things that perhaps they're not even inherently sinful in and of themselves. They're just excessive. They're just useful. You're useless. They're just not conducive to living a life unto the glory of God. It's what Paul refers to, and if you believe he wrote it, which I did, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2, when he says, laying aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The weights are not necessarily sins in and of themselves. They're just things that don't help us run our race. We have unhealthy attachments to these things, and so the Father... He has to come, and He has to cut them away. We're not always willing to give them up, so there are times in our stubbornness when He must forcibly take them from us. A few months ago, when my son first began to have the ability to stand up, he could not stand up unaided. He had to be holding on to something in order to pull himself up, and in order to hold himself up. That's, that's still his, his condition. But the problem he had was that he had a really hard time in the beginning getting from a standing position to a sitting position back to a crawling position. 
So what would happen is he would trap himself. He would find something to pull himself up on and stand up, and then he'd be standing there stranded. And he had his first philosophical dilemma. Because he would pull himself up, and he'd be holding on to the hearth in our living room, and he'd be feeling really good about himself there, standing on his two feet, upright and erect. But then his mother would walk by. And he would see his mother, and he wants to go to her, but he can't figure out for the life of him how to get back down and crawl over there. So he would literally be standing there holding onto the hearth, crying. Because he couldn't get to where he wanted to go. And this was his philosophical dilemma. He wanted to come, but in order for him to come, he had to let go. And some of you are stunted in your Christian life because you're holding on to the very things that keep you from coming closer to Christ. What you must realize is that you'll never be able to come to Him until you let go. And just like my wife, who goes to our son, we would sit there, we'd kneel down, we'd hold out our hands and we'd say, buddy, all you have to do is reach out your hand. Just reach out your hand and grab mine and we'll take it from here and we'll pick you up and we'll hold you and we'll sustain you, but you've got to reach out your hand. I'm not preaching some sort of Arminian regenerate, decisional regeneration. I'm talking about the saints of God. You who refuse the ordinary means of grace. You who go on in your stubbornness. When God says, well, I don't know about you, but I was there Sunday morning in the Word as it was preached, in the ordinances as they were administered, in the hymns as they were sung extending myself to you time and time again. But yet you were too busy clinging on. You wouldn't let go and grab hold of me. You'll only be able to grab hold of Christ with empty hands. The instruments that God uses to prune us, to force us, to finally relinquish our grip are many. Sickness, hardship, failure, Grief, loss of friendships, disappointments, financial troubles, sadness, death of a loved one, and even depression. Believer, you must understand that God is orchestrating weakness in your life. And He is ordaining pain and sorrow and suffering in order to make you holy. Because it's better to be pruned to grow than cut up to burn. See, we often have such a skewed view of discipline. There is such a thing as corrective discipline. That is, the discipline that comes to us when we have sinned, when we have fallen. But there's also, and this is far more common in our lives, formative discipline. But sometimes difficulties and hard providence come our way and we sit there and we say, Oh God, what have I done? What sin have I committed that you're punishing me for? But what if you haven't done anything? What if this is God formatively disciplining you to make you a more 
profitable servant. Hold your place in John 15 and look with me at 2 Corinthians 12. Very familiar portion of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. You know where I'm going. Paul says, unless I should be exalted above measure, in verse 7, through the abundance of the revelations. What is he saying? Paul's not saying, I'm receiving this because of some sin I've committed. No, I'm receiving this because of how good God has been to me. He's given me revelations. He's given me a ministry. He's given me all of these privileges to preach the gospel. And lest I should be exalted and pride overtake me, the weeds of this world overgrow me, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. We don't know what this thorn was, what this messenger was. I, I have my thoughts. You can ask me at lunch if you're really curious. But here's what we do know about it. it. It bothered Paul. It reminded him that he was weak. It brought him pain physically and mentally. And in verse 8 he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it's not wrong for you to say, Lord, please take this pain away. Lord, please save me from my distresses. Lord, would you allow the darkness to lift? It's not wrong to pray that at all. But when you pray that, may you also pray for the grace to respond the way Paul responds. Verse 9, and he said unto me, this is the answer he got to his prayer. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's not the answer we want. We don't want to hear that, Lord. We want to hear, oh yes, I'll take it away. But Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong, not in myself, but in Him. When Paul realized that his hardship and his difficulty was an occasion for Christ to magnify himself in his life and manifest his power in Paul's life, Paul gloried in it. Paul gloried in it. Would to God that we would begin to look at our discouragements that way. This discouragement is not an opportunity for Satan to triumph over the church. No, this is an opportunity for Christ to be exalted. Because even though I am so weak and so feeble and in and of myself such a failure, He's still pleased to use me and to prune me and to grow me. Hebrews 12, verses 9-14. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. 
maybe not in the moment, <laughs> but those of you who had a faithful parent that disciplined you, if you have any good sense, you, you came to a point where you thanked them for that. Thank you for not letting me go my own way. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Uh, That means that while we were children, while we were children, children, while you were children, your parents discipline you as they see fit. Because they love you and they, they want you to become good adults. But it's only for a few days. It's only for a little while. But He, that is God, chastens us for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Why did God allow that pain to come into your life? Why did God allow that hardship to befall you? Why did God allow you to fall on your face and fail yet again like He does me all the time? Is it because He's mad at me and angry with me? And his love for me has grown cold and he now wants nothing to do with me and he's punishing me for some sin and and he woke up on the wrong side of the bed and now I've lost his favor. No, it's because he wants me to grow in holiness, to become more like him. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Amen, somebody? Seems grievous. That's what the Bible says. It's, it's, you're, you're not unspiritual to say, I'm going through a really hard time. And it's, it's giving me anxiety and worries. And I feel the pressure. And You know, I cry every morning when I get up because of these hardships. And I feel the pain. I feel the sting of them. It's not supposed to be joyous in the present. It's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable, what's the word? Fruit of righteousness. Unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the path for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You know what the glorious thing about God is? That which He demands, He provides. You want to see me? You've got to be holy. Lord, I can't be holy. I know. That's why I'm going to purge you and prune you and make you holy. Don't despise your weaknesses. Don't become bitter against the chastening hand of God, the disciplining hand of God. God's pruning is His way of making us holy. By it, He weans us from the world and He weans us from ourselves and He drives us to our Bibles and He drives us to our prayer closets and He drives us to one another. This, this, this church did not have near the amount of unity. I'm talking about the, these disciples in John 15. They did not have near the amount of unity that they had until after their Lord was crucified and they spent some time in prayer in the upper room and the Spirit of God came upon them and then they were ready to go out and be witnesses unto Him. 
May we read these verses and say, Lord, whatever it takes to make me like Jesus, if you have to tear me down and lay me bare and expose all of my hidden sins and all of my iniquities, if you have to embarrass me and crush me and break me so that you can pick me up, put the pieces back together and reform me and remold me, whatever it takes, Lord, make me like Him. This is how He works in your life, believer. He's doing this right now in your life. You know that controversial passage in the Old Testament? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. How did God hate Esau? Have you ever thought about that? We know how. We know how he loved Jacob, but how did he hate Esau? He hate he hated Esau. By leaving him alone. By giving him all of the material blessings that his heart desired. Money, wealth, influence, servants, land. When Jacob came back to Israel to meet Esau, Esau had grown to be a mighty man. In the world's eyes, Esau had made it. The Bible says God hated him. Esau was never pruned. Esau was never disciplined. Esau was never conformed to the image of Christ by God the Father. How did he love Jacob? He beat the daylights out of Jacob. He wrestled with him. He hurt him. He he grabbed hold of him and exposed his sins and ruined his heart. And Jacob said, Lord, bless me. And God said, if you want my blessing, I'm going to have to hurt you to receive my blessing. And you're going to walk with a limp the rest of your life. And you're going to come back to Israel with nothing. And you're going to see your brother. And he's going to be so mighty. But you know what? Jacob, you will bear the mark of one who has the strength of God with him. We are so tempted, are we not, in our day to look around and to see churches that are built on another gospel or on another doctrine and, and they do that. I mean, they're tearing down their barns to build bigger barns. But if there's no life from the true vine, there's no discipline from the hand of God. All the Father's doing is preparing them to be taken away. May we say, you can have this world and all of its luxuries and all of its blessings and all of its riches. Give me Christ. Give me Christ. Thirdly, we see in verse 3 as we close, the cleansing. He says, now ye are clean. And the word clean in verse 3 is the same word translated purge in verse 2. It's the same word. I'm not sure why the translators chose to translate it differently, but here's what he's really saying there. He's saying, he's saying, the proof that you are my people is that you have been and are going through this process of purging. You are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. His word as the refiner's fire 
begins to work on your heart and God takes His pruning knife in one hand and He places us in the school of affliction and He removes all of our worldly comforts one by one until we realize that we are nothing and we have nothing except for Christ and His Word. When we get to that place, if we get to that place, what a blessed place it is. To realize that if we live after the flesh, we will die. But if through the Spirit we do mortify the deeds of the body, we will live. Before fruitful life can grow in us, there must be a death to the weeds of sin and self and the world. We die as Christians in order to live. What a blessing. Are you discouraged? Are you, do you, are you feeling this? Are you feeling this death? God prunes us. And Jesus does not tell us these things so that we will live in fear of the Father's pruning. He wants us to be encouraged to know that He which has begun a good work in us will perform it. That's right. Because when you look at yourself and all you see are disappointments and discouragements and failures and weakness, you should see that there's nothing there to look at. Look to Christ. Find your fullness in Him. Find your sufficiency in Him. Find your satisfaction in Him. Find your acceptance with God in Him. You are pruned. May we learn to kiss the hand that breaks us and to yield to this pruning work in our lives that we might bear forth more fruit for His honor and His glory. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your Word for this wonderful parable, for the truth contained in it. Lord, as I struggle even to preach these verses, I pray that you would drive home this truth, the pruning work of God in our lives. May you do this in our church, in our families, in our homes, in our hearts. Conform us to the one who died on the cross for us. We praise you, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.